So with this uh, few people in the assembly today, so a lot of space. Mm. Let's have a spacious evening. Space is not um, space that keeps us separate, but space that connects us to something uh, where we feel a sense of connection, physically quite distant. But in terms of chitta, in terms of heart, space, time don't really mean anything. It's a matter of what things count for you, what things touch you, what things affect you, what things, qualities inspire, gladden. Touch the right place for you. And this is a, you know, my Dhamma teaching is never ever completed because it's always got to be what's right at the right time. That's changing. Mm. So there's really a Dhamma day scenario as a pointing, not so much an informing. The touching, the pointing, what affects you, what do you need? Mm. What supports that inquiry, that search, that interest in meaning, value? There's a certain freeness, freedom about that, like uh, sometimes it's space itself is really what's needed. Rest, nothing much happening. Mm, Just a chance to decompress. Not be producing anything, making anything, figuring anything creating anything, just decompress. Last few days in the monastery it's been pretty quiet, so few people, few little bit of tidying up, nothing much going on. No event, no great thing to rev up for. And I like that. Mm. I mean, fine, it's great to have occasions now and then, but it's also really so valuable to find times with no occasion. It's just trees, mind, breathing, body, people. Nothing much going on. Not a great deal of things to organise, figure out. Explain gives a kind of a takes the pressure off the mind, um, pressure of data, pressure of arriving at conclusions, pressure of making things happen. It's uh, taking realize all these are conditioning forces. Not bad, but they're conditioning forces. 
And we were just really wary of even conditioning forces that are are okay, you know. This is all good, effective, useful, helpful. It's a conditioning force, sankara. And they get compulsive. They get compulsive. You know, because they are formative. They form the channels down which your energy flows. The energy underlies your your mental patterns, your psychological patterns, your emotional patterns, even the way your, your body works. So when you're doing a lot, you're doing a lot, you have a pause and the mind's racing to what, what do I do now, what do I do now, what's supposed to be happening, what do I You know? Or, or looking at things, oh, fix this, sort that, dig this, paint that. What happens when you just say, stop, let it be. And the emotional drive just eases up. Oh. And as it eases up, it can deepen into depths of heart, if you're mysterious, sometimes joyful, sometimes sad, sometimes. Mm. Getting out of our conventional named designated identity. Designated function, which we all know, we use the abbot, the work monk, the guest, the nun, and all the other designations that we use. But realize this is Nama, the world is ruled by Nama, by designations. Naming. And these are these are the clothes we wear. But it's not the body we live in. Hopefully it fits. But it's good also just freshen up. Yeah, because otherwise we end up designations talk to designations. <laughs> and we lose heart. We lose that sense of the animate, mysterious vitality that's flowing through us, we just end up performing fixed duties, fixed patterns, fixed structures, fix this, fix that, you know, all okay, okay, necessary, but time, sometimes just time to lift off that, recognise these have to be, these are all these conditioning forces, the ways we name, organise our days, organise who does what, who, what we call her or him. All take energy, they keep them going. They all take energy from, from, from you, from the life force. And that gets compulsive. And what's it like when we just 
take half an hour, an hour, a day, and stop. Just be alive. Just be alive. How how seeing things, how they affect you, how glowing leaves affect you, how the sun, the rain, the silence affect you. Mm. How the sight of other people affects you. mm. How the breath of your body affects you. And your tiredness. And your aspirations. Mm. So we're going down to some very primary level. The animated condition, the animated experience. Not abstract, not linear, but animal. Which is, you know, where it all came from, wasn't it? These uh, one pra, which is kind of like a Sabbath day in the time of the Buddha. This is when the householders would put down their duties and their their clothes. You know, they wear white clothes or their finery. They take off their finery, their regalia, and they realize clothes are really a matter of showing people who you are whether you're the chief, the headman, the, you know, all that, right? Clothes are often a, it's a business card, this is who I am, I'm the big cheese, I'm the, I've got the turban or the regalia or the rings or whatever. Take it off, just wear simple white clothes, hair tied back so you've got lovely long black hair or grey or whatever, it doesn't matter anymore. So that dropping of the the out form of one's identity and the occupations. Mm. And everyone felt the need for that. It was like come out of role, lift off of duty, lift out of responsibility and turn to the moon. It's all calibrated according to the moon, which is a very, you know, force of mystery, isn't it? It's always the kind of lunar side is the Irrational, irregular, mysterious force. And that's okay, now it's time to be like that, come out of the solar days into the mystery of the night. And then you turn to Dhamma. You're very keen, your very ear is listening, your senses are picking up voice tones. And the summoners come out of the forest. These strange people who live in the wilderness. Out of any, you know, all the social, people of, of the wilderness. Not following the social norms. Given up their sacred thread. Given up their place in the family, the caste, the village conventions that bind the society together, they've given it all up. They've become wild men. 
and yet these wild men have tamed themselves. They have that vigour, that vigour, that vitality of wild life, and yet they've tamed it, so it's got quiet, power, strength, depth. They come out of the forest once a week, and they teach the Dhamma. Who are these beings? Who are they? Perhaps even frightened of them. You listen up because of that. And for the summoners, this would be the day when they actually regulated. You know, most of their days were just not chaos, but very irregular. Just, you know, use the rhythm of the light, no clocks, no time, dawn, okay, start getting things together, wander off, try and find a nearby village for some alms food, who knows what's going to turn up. Find some place, get some food, have the meal, end of that, then just back into the jungle, into the forest again. (laughs) I mean, no, no straight lines in there. But one day a week, they went, okay, this is the time. We regulate. Every two weeks we chant our discipline. Every two weeks we gather, do the discipline, get the lines down again, get the conventions and systems straight, establish that as a frame of reference. Then you go back into the wilderness with a proper container. Tame the wilderness, the wildness of your heart. So it becomes quiet strength. Mm. Sense of kinship with the other summoners. Kinship not because of their role or function or whether they're kshatriyas or brahmins or just because they're fellow summoners, those who've gone over the edge in the noble quest. So a a kinship, which is kinship of the spirit. Mm. Mm. And then that sense of grounding in ethics, which was understood to be the moral axis of the universe. Human being has a duty to maintain the ethical balance in the cosmos. Without that, everything goes topsy-turvy. So the summoner's duty, maintain the moral axis. You maintain know, themselves with that. Responsibility. Their, very, their own teacher said, you have to, on these days, you should go out Offer Dhamma to lay, lay people. This is your duty. Okay, do that. So these structures built around to channel, focus our vitality, our energy within.
you know, so for the household, it was a matter of kind of coming out of a very highly structured, busy life into something quite open and mysterious. And for the summoners, it was coming out of something very open and wild into something much more structured. And the balance of the two. And the duty of the summoner to bring the fresh, living, spoken, heard, bodily presence, Dhamma, not just reading a whole load of books and rules and stuff. So their vitality, carrying the Dhamma. These are clearly, you can just consider almost the the recognition that any sane society needs balance. You need the conventions and structures and you need the open, free time where things can be, these things can be put aside. Otherwise things, too much structure, you start to get rigid and mechanical and then all you just into designations, this is mine, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, you're that, I'm this, we do that, we do, you know, it gets like that. Mm. See, so it's something where you lift off that, something more primary. But of course, if you just uh, don't have any structures, then it doesn't get contained. Energy and vitality just kind of there's no focus. So we need them both. And when you're looking at your own practice, you realise there's a place and a time and a need, a structure. And ideally, we begin to understand that, know it for ourselves, take it seriously. The structure is going to be to do with integrity, responsibility, kinship, support of others. That's what, okay, the within that. Mm. And of course, as has always been the case, as things get more established and structured, more organised, you get monasteries, you get buildings, you get the whole kind of uh, accumulation of protocols, duties, business, chores, rotors, calendars, days, this, that, this, that. You know, they can get very structured. So the duty becomes also one of how to unstructure this is a matter of heart isn't it because we can get all the you can see this kind of left brain right brain was the way they used to talk about it I don't know if it's still a way people understand things left brain linear organised intellectual conceptual concepts right brain more poetic mysterious imaginative emotionally two together much more right brains about understanding space context 
reading the room if you like certain spontaneity left brain about organising things reading the data and the two ideally the two kind of work with each other certainly in a highly left brain influenced culture we need to remember that right brain heart aspect and particularly even certainly monasteries also because you've got all the training rules plus all the refined protocols that come from the training rules plus the duties plus the rosters plus the structures plus the you know relational hierarchies trying to work with all these they can get very very highly fabricated and ideally that can be something that shapes and the, the heart from so it comes out of waywardness and you know and carelessness and in, you know selfishness and obsessiveness yes true but of course one can get obsessive about structures too <laughs> You know, structure isn't an end to defilements in itself. <laughs> can be used to that way, but also recognizing you can go so far with that, and then you can start getting attached to structures. Called one of the fundamental fetters, Sirabata Faramasa, which is attachment to systems and structures, principles and protocols. And the Buddha never said we shouldn't have any, but he said it's the clinging to them. That's the problem. When we search for reality, security, fixity, permanence, satisfactoriness and identity in terms of systems and structures. Who I am, how I can do this, who's got it right, the right thing, getting it right, everything organised. And then we go into this kind of flat land of, you know, where the quality of heart disappears. Spontaneity, humour, ability to flex disappears. And this is the you know, definitely a problem for human beings. Because we do organise. Every society organises. And you recognise every society organises always rebellions and there's always going to be football games and Parties and to somehow take the pressure off, all people start getting rebellious and rioting because it structure alone doesn't do it. Mm. And in uh, Dhamma practice, the idea is yeah, you use structure, but also for taming and mollifying and nourishing the heart, you can't just rely on structure, you've got to rely upon direct empathy spaciousness, compassion, warmth and uh, feeling the energy feeling the very quality of the animated experience which is energetic when you're getting tight when you're getting driven when you're getting stagnant when you're getting sloppy when you're getting rigid you know, you can then suddenly recognize, ah yes, and you've got a way of reading intimately what's happening for you and then how to respond to that 
getting stagnant, come on. Remember what we're here for. Getting uptight. Come on, remember what we're here for, for liberation, not for perfection. Yeah. Getting kind of fixated upon duties. Mm. Well, not taking one's duties seriously. So, you know, whatever you say, you can say the opposite, but then you've just got to recognize each and every one of us what's happening in terms of our energies, where they're getting habituated, mechanical, or irregular and careless, and moderate it, work with it. Yeah. Of course, the forest tradition has never been that regular. That's part of its charm and its, its uh, earthiness. Never really been a, you know, it's often scripturally kind of pretty colloquial, sometimes not very accurate. It's not good on parley, it's not good on uh, on kind of clear lines, it's more or less kind of feel it out and, you know, work with the stuff with your bare hands, kind of work with, you know, kind of attitude. With some sense of mistrust for too much intellectual learning, like, you know, going up in your head, you're losing you, you're losing your real, your real intelligence is in your head, it's in your fingers, it's in your heart, it's in your voice, and it's in your listening. You know, the other stuff, you go crazy up there. So it's always, forest monitor is always a little bit chaotic generally, you don't quite know what's going on, you just have to look around and see what people are doing. Sometimes routines get, they have a routine but whether you follow it or not, it's kind of, you know, a matter of feel what's right for you. And a poor child, definitely keep ringing the changes. Sometimes you just cancel everything. People are just left to drift around and sometimes things get really sloppy and careless. And let it be that way. Figure out, find out for yourself where you're getting it wrong. Look at the results. And then things got really handy suddenly, you know, rally everybody, they give them a pep talk and pull them in a line again. And then be like that for a while and then let it go again. Eventually, you learn, you've got to learn for yourself. And it's, it's the jungle. Mm. You learn by that, by really taking these pause points, just checking what the results. These aren't just short-term results, they're long-term results. And, you know, and this is really helpful because with meditation practice there are some short-term results you know you can get you know increasingly more attentive and more concentrated with practice but also long-term results which about development it gets less judgmental less fixated less comparing yourself with others less right and wrong less black and white thinking Mm. these results, an ability to just not react to 
things not being the way they should be. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a development of a of a liberation. It's not just a you know the liberations with liberation from the conditions. Um, Short term benefits of meditation are getting conditions right, cultivation, getting the attention right, getting the intention right. Long term results seem mysterious. You, sometimes you don't even realise them. Yeah, they're happening. Because you just notice you're not getting so excited about this. You're not getting so annoyed by that. You're not concerned so much about identifying, you know, naming or comparing yourself or judging yourself. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't, who cares? You know? There's some freedom. And freedom isn't something you just don't notice first. But uh, if you feel the energies, you feel more grounded, more stable, more space, less compact, less tight, less driven, not having to fill up every moment of the day with doing something. They would be still. with no particular aim. Energies. So as we do, you know, energies are both active, we do things, and also receptive. We receive. They're both important. Active does things, receptive receives the results, integrates. And it integrates by itself, just like when you eat food. You don't have to do the chewing, definitely, consciously. But the digesting happens. The system does the digesting. You don't digest anything. The system digests it in its own way. Similarly, we practice. We do things, and then we digest. Or the system digests, independent of one's will. Independent of one's choice. It does it. Yeah, so you don't have to keep chewing more and more things. You let the other stuff be fully assimilated. And this means you pause from action. And how we just get a sense of how is this now? And to do that. Yeah. So as I teach people Qigong, and I say when you do Qigong, you do the form, so every time you do a movement, you let the movement subside and you linger in the space after the movement is finished. Because you may have finished the movement, but the energy hasn't finished. And settles later. So you can spend, you know, five or ten minutes doing something, then spend another five minutes just standing, letting things settle and that's always no will no decision no no aim just allowing things to settle find a new form and it's a kind of um, a good thing to remember Uh, essential because if you don't do the receptive you don't digest anything 
and we sometimes keep cramming thinking the more you cram in the more you do you know then the better it will get no no it's like you know food you put in your mouth it's not going to work until it gets in your belly (laughs) and you've got to let it get down there lifting I remember we used to, these monasteries originally they were pretty rough and very, we were very busy, we just worked when it, work was needed, which was a lot of the time. We'd often, some nights we'd just hook up, hook up the, the floodlights and work into the night because the roof was leaking, you know, decide or knock off at six, or, you know, five o'clock. If the rain's pouring, you work until you've got the roof fixed. <laughs> you know? Uh, put the all the main structures in the shrine room. They're, they're, those were done in the evening. You know, uh, they're just getting some roof girders in. It took time to get the main beams in, get the pulleys, get the get all the chains and things up. There it was just getting dark. Okay, look up the lights. You can't stop now. Get it done. Get it there. And then okay, it was ten o'clock at night. Finished. Okay, well that's it then, isn't it? You don't get up in the you get up at six or something. And that was always understood. It's gonna be irregular and trusting people to live with integrity. Uh, and that brought out the sense of integrity. You two just following his blind obedience, you don't develop your own integrity. Yes you just obey. But this isn't about obeying. Yes, it's a certain discipleship, but essentially it's till you learn to handle your own stuff and your own responsibilities with care and diligence. And why? Because it's a matter of heart, not rules and who gets most or who gets least. It's a matter of I'm bringing forth the best I can in accordance with my energies and skills. And this is is where I'm going to grow, be bigger than what I think I am. But also there were times we just lay off. Just lay off and Week of nothing. People wandering around, looking confused, and what to do with themselves. Just said, "When Paul Samaya just said, we'll just be with that. <laughs> you, you figure." And then even the days, I used to make a point of all. Particularly when we got to Amravati, which is also a kind of crazy, rough, rough-necked place. Oh, I switched to turn because he couldn't. It was a big um, old school with these wooden buildings which weren't insulated, and it was run by huge oil burners, um, run on oil with pipes running under the soil into the building. So of course it was hugely inefficient. 
heat leaking out. All the worms were very happy because there was no, no insulation around the pipes. But the buildings were just leaking. Heat just didn't stay in them at all. And then they said, we can't afford the oil when we've got, when we've got the monastery, the buildings. They say, okay, we've got the buildings. We bought that. The trust said, we don't have enough money to keep this oil thing going. Switch it off. End of heat. That was, we moved in, I think, in July or August, but then the heat came off in September or October. Then, okay, right, better get the insulation in. So I started insulating the one building. This meant not like, you know, one day a week, just you do it because you're going to freeze otherwise. We did that and we put a heat a boiler in for the nuns, so the nuns and the rest of us just said, okay, we'll just endure the winter. And that's what we did. And so but then you you what you know, you really get a sense of comradeship in that. Because it wasn't like somebody was doing it to you for some malicious reason, just well, that's what the elements were doing, so you've got to respond to it. The nature doesn't obey laws and rules. They can get really quite rough in some ways. But I always felt that um, we develop human relationships within that. Like we'd share. We had one electric fire in the in the vihara, Bhikkhu vihara, and everybody get it for twenty minutes. <laughs> We pass it around from room to room, so everybody had 20 minutes of being warm. <laughs> well, not that warm, but at least kind of putting your hands over something or drying your socks or something. And then, you, okay, you're 20 minutes up, go give it to the guy in the next room. <laughs> I used to make a point of um, when I was at Amarodia, massage. And for Samedo's feet every day when he was in the monastery, it was regular duty. Didn't have to do it, just felt that was a nice way to, you know, have a busy person, lots of duties, just let him relax, let him be looked after. He looks after everybody else, best he can, I'll look after him. So I chose that, and he'd just sit there, we didn't say very much. I just, I didn't need to talk, didn't need any dhamma, just this was the dhamma. Get a bowl of hot water, put his feet in it, then dry them carefully and then start massaging. Then to that, you can see him relaxing, you see his energy changing. And he's almost half asleep by the time I finished. It was a great joy, happiness to have that possibility is to change the energy around. And then it was not, you know, me, Bhikkhu Suchito, Nine Vasas, Ajahn Sameo, whatever he was. It was just two, two men. Uh, and their care. And still, also made a point of once, uh, every now and then I'd organise something in the kitchen and say, okay, tomorrow I think I'm going to take Ajahn Sameo out for a walk. So could I have a 
few sandwiches, prepare them, and I'll come across in the morning, pick up some sandwiches, I'll make a big flask of coffee, I'll go around to his cootie and say, Tanajan, let's go for a walk. I'll take you out to the local forest. So we wander off over the hills into this Ash Ridge Forest. And we talk about Ash Ridge Forest, which is old deer forest where the black prince used to hunt deer in the 14th century. So I talk about that and he listened to it all. It's all just totally off, off the script, you know. <laughs> but that was the point of it. It wasn't about being serious and practicing hard or just <laughs> it's just about changing the energy and the attitudes and the psychologies. Just because it kept you fresh, it kept us human. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the beauty of the life is to teach me doing these upatak duties, not just to make it a chore. Because the sangha is really bound together by warm heartedness, not by well not purely by rules, but also by warm-heartedness that needs to be fostered because we can get so kind of arid and linear. And he was great for that because he was always, he wasn't very linear, <laughs> he wasn't very organised. Definitely not, he was a real forest monk, you know, often his way, you know, definitely tangential to what the scriptures are saying, just talking off the bat or ad-libbing and sometimes quite irreverent or politically incorrect stuff, just rolling out with humour and sometimes you get a bit, you know, riled up and get fierce and you just, okay, you roll with it, you know, it's a real human. And one time he took us off to this, he, he, myself, Ajinata Paymore then was there, he was a great organiser, he was a very busy office person, I think a couple of others. And he said, I'm taking you off to Oxford. You're welcome to come to Oxford with me. We're going to a, 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 a concert of some kind by this Hindu guru called Sri Chinmoy. I thought, okay, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> Tanajan says, so we'll go. So he jumped in the, whatever it was, went down to this place in Oxford, this is Sri Chinmoy. And Sri Chinmoy, he didn't really teach anything, he, was, he just was, you know, like, uh, he was just was. And his whole life was an act of serving the divine, you know some way serving the divine, that was his whole thing. And the way you do that, he did two particular things. One was weightlifting, which he did as a way of somehow demonstrating his service to the divine. The other was he played his flutes. And some kind of presentation of divine love, grace or something. And he had these odd shaped gourds and little horns and tubes and he'd blow down them. And we were in this, it was a free, free thing. And we were sitting in this kind of hall in Oxford with lots of people around who would come to this. We were sitting there, 
and he's going playing his funny, no, no real tune, just sounds coming out of these tubes. They're all kind of his spontaneous um, resonance with the divine. So he plays some, and the people walking out. You hear it only another chair go, and people wander off. And they couldn't stand it because there was no, there was no tune, no song. It's just random sounds. We sat there. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and so gradually the hall was empty. <laughs> People couldn't stand the chaos. And we just sat there. Okay, fine, we'll be with this. It's kind of interesting. Then he had some kind of women, or these disciples who wore white. And they came on, and they were kind of doing something or the other, warbling or something, chanting. And they saw us and they said, oh, we have a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist monk here, Buddhist friends here. We like to do a homage to them. So he did this, did this kind of namotasa. They started chanting namotasa bhagavato arato in a very lilting way. It was their kind of way of expressing love and divine warmth and to, in terms of Buddha. They were classic stuff, you know, classic Hindu, you can be anything whatever, it's a manifestation of the divine. So Buddha, that, we can do that too. <laughs> and, you know, so I thought it was kind of interesting. And we listened to that and, you know, and they all thanked him, all kind of smiled, and he was very happy and just a nice warm-hearted occasion. They could go back to Amravati, you know, <laughs> work, grime, grease, grunt, grit. Hot, lukewarm porridge, stone cold tea. <laughs> Same old boring stuff. <laughs> because that's all part of it. You don't want it to be kind of wonderful and lilting and rhapsodic all the time. But so, you know, so you get these changes and then you come back to that other stuff with a sense of it's just changes, it's just phases. You know, there's time to be disciplined and some to be light. Yeah. And they both have to be carefully handled. So your discipline is just simple, honest, straight, what's needed. Not just cranky, overdoing it. Your playfulness is light, harmless, gentle, sensitive. It's not wacky rave-ups are just gentle, sensitive, light, spacious. Mm-hmm. You cultivate these two aspects. When you allow these two aspects into your life, you must make the opportunities to refresh and look at both aspects. So they're, they're feeding each other. The discipline creates the axis. The lightness creates the supports and refreshes the heart. When they come together, then you have the Dhamma Vinaya. You have the, the essence and, and the conventions. And, the, and together, they liberate our clinging, our attachments, our ideologies, our fixations. Mm. So tonight is our one prayer night. It's 
been quite a uh, spacious few days. I like to think we're moving into the Katina, so I imagine all kinds of things will be needed to be organized. And then after that, people will start flying off again, different directions, the monastery will empty out again. So, you know, go with the changes. There's not much, many people can't do very much. A lot of people you can do things, not many people you can't do things. That's the way it goes. That's the way it's supposed to be, irregular, changing. You learn how to adapt. But uh, tonight I really uh, recommend just give yourself some time, some space. We won't have any more formal meetings this evening. We'll draw things to a close and give you the opportunity to reflect, consider and do what you feel is suitable. Hey, welcome.